Hi, I'm Shauna Lutker. And I'm Mario Antiveros. Welcome back to Extras, Artists, and Rights. Each episode brings a group of artists around a table to talk together about what art can do. They share their strategies for reaching across the boundaries of their disciplines, how they build bridges, how they work collectively, and how they create supportive conditions and opportunities. Today we bring you episode seven, Becoming Visible, Being a Thorn, and Seeking Justice. With artists Zachary Drucker, Ari Lee, Sandra De La Loza, and Jacqueline Romine, and with Mario Back as our moderator. In this episode, they discuss the ethical pitfalls and radical possibilities of visibility. Sandra De La Loza acknowledges that we're living in a moment where we're overly surveilled and overly visible with AI, facial recognition, Instagram, TikTok, etc. She reminisces about the magically transformative spaces of the underground. Yeah, and she asks a really challenging question. How do we create structures where we can have more honest, more intimate, more vulnerable conversations. Yeah, and on the flip side of becoming more visible, they also talk about erasure and invisibility. Access is not universal, and some ethically-minded efforts are still very exclusionary. For example, Jacqueline asserts that even the most progressive institutions and art centers are not often aware that disabled bodies are denied entry. She says any space that is not physically accessible to the disabled body is not radical. This episode was recorded in February 2020, about a month before the COVID-19 pandemic caused LA to shut down and before the mass uprisings in the name of racial justice and against police brutality. You can find more information about this podcast, the artists and their work, as well as a transcript on Extra's website at extraonline.org. My name is Jacqueline Romine. Um, I'm a visual and performance art protest uh, artist who also makes art books and zines. I'm Zachary Drucker. I am a human being and an artist and an advocate for the trans community. And I'm so happy to be here. Good morning, everyone. My name is Sandra De La Loza, and uh, I am a multi-generational Angelino. Um, actually, I don't know how far back my roots go. I, I le recently learned of an ancestor who was buried in the San Gabriel Mission. So that's, I'm interested in, in know knowing and learning how far back my roots uh, go back. That'll be my next line of investigation. Um, my work is research-based, so I'm finally turning to myself as subject for research. Um, and a uh, word that I'm really connecting with these days is, is connecting. I'm Ari Lee. I'm a visual artist. My medium is primarily video and new media, although in the past few years I've started introducing weaving into my practice. I found that weaving came was the um, genesis of the first computers, and being a new media artist, I naturally was very intrigued, and my current body of work stems from that research. Hmm. Well, welcome, everyone. So today we're meeting to talk about um, becoming visible. And one of the things that, uh, as a sort of way to begin that, was to sort of think about the urgencies and the concerns, what's most pressing around that topic, maybe for you. Um, and that's why, for me, the idea of belonging and solidarity are two important issues around becoming visible that are hard to sustain sometimes in this climate that we live in.
For my reason or my representation, like being in, included in this talk and originally being included in the, the first round of talks was um, um, my protest performance art is about disability uh, justice because um, part of my practice is uh, protesting in front of art spaces and music spaces that are physically inaccessible to the disabled body for an entire opening or closing. And so I go to the space um, without the intention of protesting. Um, I go to an art space because I want to go to support artists that I know, or I'm interested in the art that's there, or I had heard about the space from somebody else, but without the knowledge that it was accessible, inaccessible. And then I physically go to the space and I actively want to participate, but my body is segregated on purpose because the disabled body is an afterthought uh, for the majority of the art, the DIY art community in Los Angeles. So me being visible, um, me at, along with every other disabled body is excluded. Um, uh, I don't believe intentionally initially, but once I bring it to the awareness of the space and um, they recognize the fact that I have been excluded, either they have made choices to continue to stay there or they have moved to a place that's accessible. So visibility um, for me looks like, at, it, visibility for me is only allowed with physical access. So that's part of why I'm here and what I talk about. Thank you so much for that, Jacqueline. I think, you know, a lot about how visibility is, uh, you know, it begins with representation, begins with images, and how the kind of dearth of images of people with disabilities, of trans people, of people of color existing in uh, public life have kind of um, invisibilized us and made our needs sort of um, underground. Um, uh, concealed, like have, have made our the the, the physical needs um, for us to exist uh, invisibilized. Representation in the trans community, I think, has really been front and center in the conversation over the past several years because of the emergence of gender diversity on screen and the counter, um, you know. I'm sorry, I'm a little jumbled, but having trans visibility in the media has also catalyzed a backlash to trans and gender diverse people. And trans women of color are being murdered in larger numbers with every passing year. Um, with every kind of cultural gain, there's an unintended um, counterpoint there's an undercurrent that also happens and i always think that the future is both better and worse that things move simultaneously in both directions um, and without that kind of visibility will we ever see a trans or non-binary person as president or in a, a prominent public position um, after decades of being clandestine and sort of underground being creatures of the night or assimilating into society so effectively that nobody knows about your trans history. I also think about AI facial recognition and the fact that, you know, at a consumer level one day soon, there might be apps that identify us, um, who we are, where we live to anybody, and that 
let law enforcement, you know, federal, state, local law enforcement are already using this kind of facial recognition. Well, I have Instagram stories. Every Instagram story you use facial recognition on, it is recording your face, like on the app. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, <laughs> it's spooky. I mean, I mean surveillance used to be such a kind of frequently discussed and contested area of, of life. Mm -hmm. And now it's kind of something that we've accepted, this constant invasion to our privacy. I think about in Los Angeles, just helicopters overhead and the kind of like um, increasing occurrence of a, a droid, drone, you know, just like flying over your house and being like, oh, somebody's watching me. Mm -hmm. Somebody's like seeing me in my bathrobe in my backyard. Um, so visibility is uh, something we all have to reckon with, I think, and the ethics of, of visibility are still um, being publicly uh, figured out. Yeah, I think visibility is a double-edged sword, kind of what you, what you uh, refer to, Zachary. Um, I came of age in the 80s and the 90s, and actually it was through underground clubs and an underground culture um, that I was introduced to, to art and dissident thinking. Um, I agree, like we are, we're in a m moment uh, where we're overly surveilled and overly visible. Um, and for me, being underground and clandestine, like there's magic there, and there's like, I like those spaces when, where we're not surveilling ourselves. I think um, in those spaces, often we take leaps, we were, we do, we we explore the the forbidden. Um, there's intimacy also in not being visible as well. Um, but on the other side, uh, um, as someone who's born and raised in LA and grew up under the uh, shadow of Hollywood, I definitely grew up um, uh, being erased. Um, and uh, in my early work, um, making the invisible visible was, was very important in, in my work. And. Um, so my work began, my early work began through actions, but, um, which was making uh, guerrilla historic plaques to make invisible histories visible in, in public space. And I think part of the, the intention of that work was um, to puncture the myths of, of dominant culture. So I think uh, as a tactic, as, as a strategy, um, artists um, making unknown uh, uh, or, or under-recognized um, um, narratives uh, visible is a way of denormalizing what has been normalized. Mm -hmm. That really resonates with me and the work that I've been doing recently. Um, I mentioned before that my recent body of work looks at the history of technology and how what we, the contemporary, the modern computer comes out of the technology that was, um, that came from the weaving loom. The Jacquard weaving loom used punch cards, and the people who designed the first computers looked to that technology to run the first computers. And the nature of weaving itself is binary the way, uh, the way computing is binary. Uh, computing uses ones and zeros, and weaving uses warp threads and weft threads, one of which is only visible at, at one time. So looking at these histories of technology 
actually being derived from something that is often considered to be women's work and associated with women and the fact that women were the first computer programmers and they actually were the thought of as, when you thought of a computer programmer back in like the 40s or 50s or even into the 60s, the common image of a computer programmer was a woman. And it wasn't until later on that this now dominant stereotype of the male computer, like the computer hacker or tech bro became um, prevalent. And so like you're talking about uncovering these invisible histories in my work, I'm trying to elevate this, this history that has been forgotten of women being computer programmers and women being um, integral to the creation of computer technology. And it was a woman who wrote the very first computer program in the 19th century, Ada Lovelace. Um, but then it's also interesting thinking about, um, Sandra, you're mentioning how invisibility can also be something that, that can help a community. So thinking about how now, with this dominant image of a male computer programmer, a lot of girls are sort of um, not necessarily discouraged, but they don't see themselves as being part of the computer world. Or a lot of people who um, didn't grow up as being encouraged to go into this or feel like that this is their world and they're entitled to it can feel like this is a, a venue that they don't belong in. And um, But then to make these sort of safe spaces for people who have not traditionally been in the world of technology to explore technology and be encouraged in it. Um, with programs like, uh, there's this program called Girls Who Code, which is especially geared towards girls and, and young women of color to, um, to learn technology in a space that's um, kind of curated just for them. Mm -hmm. So they don't go into a room at like a summer camp where they are the only girl in a group of 30 and feel like, whoa, wait, maybe, maybe this is not a career that I want to get into. And so in that way, creating a, a space that's away from the dominant space to, to be oneself and be okay being you know, a girl or um, just like a regular human being who happens to be female, but also can, can do this activity that maybe hasn't, um, that the, the, lar uh, the greater society hasn't seen as being something that belongs to you can be empowering too. Jacqueline, can you talk a little bit more about the, the protest aspect of how to start, um, how, you, how you use that protest to start a conversation over invisibility? Mm -hmm. Well, for me... And access. Yeah, and yeah. access. Well, for me, when I... I have been an artist... Well, I'm, I'm 34 now, and I've been an artist, like, on and off since... I think I was like mm, 20 years old for like the past 14 years I've been actively participating in art and um, I've been disabled since I was 21 so up until the age of 21 I was operating my entire life as an able-bodied person and didn't have to think about the things that I think about now and um, it took me like I think like four maybe like five years to go back to school and start making art again after my injury and um, I wanted to go to art shows and I I even had my art exhibited in an in a art space that I couldn't get into when I was still an undergrad and I didn't 
understand that it wasn't it was not it wasn't as serious as it was that I couldn't be in the same space where my art was when it was happening to me because I just wanted my art to be shown and I wanted like whatever career that I could potentially have was more important than like me being able to be there with my art being there so that was like my first real experience with that and I didn't realize that I was othering myself from being able to access art and be able to access my own art in that same context and um, I I just started going to I had more independence I didn't ha I couldn't drive yet but I was physically going out to more spaces and encountering spaces that I couldn't get into started happening to me more often because I had been like to the museums and to like different blue chip galleries and they're accessible because they're commercial public spaces and um, then meeting new artists and new artist friends like there's more DIY spaces or artist run spaces that are started to open from like 2014 until now and um, I wanted to show up and support my friends or support other artists and um, it happened to me it started happening to me more often than it didn't happen to me and this accumulation of being denied access on a constant basis um, I couldn't ignore it anymore and I couldn't ignore the fact that it wasn't just me who was being excluded it was like every disabled body that exists like in Los Angeles and like right well right now the disabled community is like 20 to 30 percent of the national population so that's how many people that these spaces are potentially excluding every time they open their doors to have an opening and the only way I knew how to make myself visible and to bring awareness to the situation was to take pictures and video and then post it on social media and I chose the medium of uh, calling, taking a picture of myself facing the space with the stairs in front of me and there's a video of me in the, from behind where my, my back is turned to the audience and my face is looking towards the problem that I'm sitting in front of which is a flight of stairs. And um, yeah, I just couldn't, I couldn't get away from the fact that it kept happening to me all the time. And so what I do is I take the picture and I take the videos and I post it on Instagram and I talk about my experience. And um, uh, most, most of the time, the spaces that I'm protesting against, they have very inclusive language. They talk about being able to highlight people of color, women of color, people from the LGBTQA community, and um, and boasting about their progressive and or um, alternative mindset. But they're um, they are constantly forgetting about the disabled body and any space that is not physically accessible to the disabled body is not radical and it is not doing anything more or less than another space that isn't including all those other uh, areas. Sandra, when you talk about invisibility, can you talk a little bit about the shift for you that because the, your earlier work that you highlighted a moment ago was about the erasure and visibility and even within your own early work with your own family and then now the shift turns back to your genealogy and your history um, how does that connect to visibility and invisibility and access? Because research-based, archive-based work, practice. 
Mm, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that my work right now is necessarily um, turning to my ge genealogy. Okay. It's just it's just surfacing for me in a very very powerful powerful way. Can I just ask um, how that surfaced? I mean, just as a, for a context for. Um, yeah, um, actually, um, I had last last summer. I was artist in, an artist in residence at uh, Lace, and I was uh, doing research on a project called To Oblivion: The Speculators Eden, and um, that work comes from um, being at a real crossroads uh, in my practice as an artist, or also really, really kind of questioning what it means to be an artist. Um, and what I'm committed to as an artist and not committed to, and, and kind of being more aware that I'm kind of not, not so much committed to a career as an artist, but a life path as an artist. Kind of to be, I'm more committed to, to, to uh, following a, a, a critical practice where I can I along with others can collectively like find 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 our agency and like really kind of doubting whether operating as an artist was the way and that kind of came came uh, surfaced um, at a point where I was and actually this is a, a really long story so I'll try to prepare at a, a crossroads where my mom was crossing. She was battling with cancer and I had hyper visibility. Um, 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 I had a solo show at uh, LACMA as part of the first uh, PST. Um, and I uh, was also um, uh, being aware of the massive um, shifts in infrastructure that have are, that was radically transforming the city that I call home, that we now call Los Angeles. Um, so gentrification um, and um, seeing seeing processes of gentrification literally uh, uh, displace the communities that I grew up 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 in. Um, and feeling really disempowered and also feeling really vulnerable, really vulnerable with the, the death of my mother and also economically feeling really vulnerable as being a, as being a precarious artist um, and um, kind of living from project to project, teaching gig to, to teaching gig and, and just really thinking like I need, I need to look at the bigger, bigger picture um, and where do I found, find my power? And so that led me to work with, with others. And, and to join anti-gentrification uh, uh, community responses uh, in, the in the neighborhood I, was live I still live in, uh, Highland Park. Um, but uh, to make, to close the loop, uh, anyway, that led to this investigation of transportation, how the, the construction of transportation shapes uh, the city and also usually when infrastructure, transportation infrastructure is built, pretty much demographic, radical de demographic shifts happen. So, as, so, so the show um, at LACE was about that. Um, two weeks before the show um, at LACE opened, um, I received a really interesting email from someone asking me if I was uh, related to Ricardo Zapien de la Losa. And um, this person had paintings of, of this artist named Ricardo Zapien de la Losa. 
And I searched my memory banks. I remember my father telling me that he had a, a cousin who was gay, and he said in kind of really homophobic way, ways, um, who was an artist. And uh, long story short, um, um, that I, long story short, I, I uh, learned that uh, I found this queer ancestor, um, um, and and so so uh, and so 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 um, literally this I found this queer ancestor. A month later, uh, I also uh, a cousin visited me and brought me my grandmother's birth certificate that um, stated that the cause of her death was a illegal abortion. So it's been all these weaving into my own research-based practice, which really is about connecting with this land and like uncovering um, the histories of, of this land. Like my own personal history has just been surfacing in really interesting ways. So I feel like the ancestors are calling me, and um, yeah, I have this opportunity to like uh, explore my, literally explore my own history. I've never really had the time, space, uh, um, or also, I don't know, the call to, to do that. Yeah, I think just to piggyback off of that, I think that this is Zachary. <clears throat> the more we know about where we come from, the more secure we are in our present. Um, we're just surrounded by ancestors whose names we don't know, um, ones who we are, you know, directly connected to, and ones that we uh, who find us. I feel like artists will have an expanded role in the future, especially as um, we transition out of capitalism. I think that um, art is the most noble pursuit in, in any kind of human civilization, that art is the creation of magic, that it is a, a in, inventing of things that have not existed before and a way to imagine our reality differently, a way to see outside of the parameters. Um, I think that art in these kind of rarefied spaces that we've all you know, circulated in um, is this like last holdout unregulated economy. And as economic structures shift and people move towards um, cooperative ways of living, living um, as people begin to opt out of a system that's clearly failing a lot of people around us. I think it's impossible to live in Los Angeles and to not be conscious of the rising epidemic of homelessness and um, the displacement of people from neighborhoods where they've lived for generations and not see the tangible and visible byproduct of that. I mean, it, it, we are in the future. Like the future is here and it's unevenly distributed, you know, and you look in certain um, directions to see which fun phenomenons are new and where we're heading. Um, I think that artists are naturally able to solve problems creatively and to see around those structures. And that as our environment also, uh, you know, as, as we stand on the edge of the mass extinction of life on Earth 
and 10 million species will be extinct in the next 10 years. Um, how do we shift our ways of being, our ways of seeing, and our ways of relating to each other in order to adapt? I feel like artists will be on the forefront of that. Mm -hmm. This is a re, I, I totally, I'm so like in that same headspace of what artists role is now is we are the visionaries. I think that we are the ones who hold that standard and provide the vision. There are so many people who are disturbed by these, these trends, the, these economic trends, these environmental trends, all these things, and want something to, they, they feel like they need to do something, but it's hard to find, there's so many voices, there's so many things you can attach yourself to, so many causes, it's hard to find just the one thing. And I think as artists, we can use our voices and our vision and provide this, this this imagination, use our imagination to provide this vision of what the future can be like that people can mobilize behind and, um, and hopefully create actual positive change. And how do you think you, like, so in what spaces can you, can those change happen? I mean, do those happen in for you as an artist? Like what arenas, what, what platforms, what environments to those do you think that you're as an artist you can intervene in or engage like is it beyond the gallery is it beyond is there multiple notions of an art world for you that's such an interesting question i think we're all trying to figure that out because the the art world has been in this transition for a number of years now and you know the gallery model isn't working for so many people it never has worked for so many people in the first place yeah, that's, that's a really tough one. I think I'm trying to kind of piece this out myself. Um, like, uh, like last fall, I, I was artist in residence at the Women's Center for Creative Work. And in, in my artist residency, I created a body of work, a, a body of visual work, some weavings and a video that were exhibited in the exhibition space there. But I, I feel like an equal part of that residency was creating these programs, these public programs, to engage people around some of these core issues that I'm involved in, um, and teaching people things like, um, like there's a design thinking workshop, having an artist talk, of course, um, teaching people weaving and coding with other collaborators, and kind of introducing these tools of the technology world to a broader audience and getting people involved. That's part of it. And also, I think because of this kind of weird intersection of worlds that I'm positioned on. You know, I'm a visual artist, so you know, I'm part of this world. I, now I'm also a weaver, so I you know, participate in weaving communities and part of the Southern California Hand Weavers Guild and Hand Weavers Guild of America. And I, I, I know a bunch of people through the textile world, which is very active here in Los Angeles. And um, then also my um, my non-art practice, uh, professional background, I came up through graphic design in my career and um, uh, visual design and user experience design. Most recently, I also do, I teach design thinking workshops and uh, do user research for technology in, the, um, in the, the public and nonprofit and art sector. And that's like a whole other world right there. And it's like, I feel like I'm kind of positioned in this very oddly unique position of being a participant in each of these just different spheres, which can all kind of help each other. And I'm, I'm hoping 
this is something I'm trying to do kind of the next wave of my activity to, to leverage my connections in each of these distinct communities um, to make connections between people and organizations to help bring about some of these changes. And because um, some communities have access to more things than others, like the technology world is very rich in tools and capital, and you know, the art world is very rich in, in vision and, um, and, and generating um, like goodwill and excitement about a cause. And the, you know, the, the textile, textile world, world brings other things to the table. And I, it, I'm interested in figuring out how we can connect these communities to, to leverage change that benefits everybody. Well, I wanted to be here, and I know the only way that, that this issue could be brought up is if I was here physically again. But it, I don't, I, it, can, it has confused me up until this point why they have continued to want me to be participant, especially with my vantage point as my uh, directive as an artist, because my directive is like consistently trying to talk about physical access and extra, even though they brought me to the table the first time, they've still had their uh, releases and their launches at inaccessible galleries mm -hmm. since I've been brought to the table to have this discussion. And I, I'm confused, I'm not confused, because like I think that's just more of what people are doing the same. But my confusion with it is like, why are you having me here? Why do you want me to be here and you want me to participate and you're asking me to say the things that I talk about and that I work about, but then you're not actually listening to me because you still had your releases for your magazine in inaccessible galleries. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's just my question back to this conversation is, if you want me to be here, if you want anybody to be here to disseminate their information and you want to believe, we want to believe that we're being heard, how can that be possible if the institutions that are saying that they are progressively thinking about these things in this way are still excluding the disabled body by opening up their magazine launches at galleries that are still inaccessible? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, you guys don't know. I mean, it kind of seems like, oh yeah, duh. but. I'm, I'm still here asking. <laughs> it's a fair question. I mean, I think that the institutions that we, <laughs> you know, that ex exploit our, pre our resources, our presence, <laughs> our intellectual labor have a necessity to advocate for our needs. And that isn't like, you know, necessarily <laughs> negotiable. I think in yeah. the art world especially, there is this kind of, it seems so predisposed to critical thinking and so open and porous. And then when it comes down to it, there is a ruthlessness oh, yeah, to sure. the, you know, profit margin. I'm not talking about any organization in particular. I just think that, um, the you know that we all, all all of our institutions are replicating the systems of capitalism which are still based on profit yes. which don't really give you know much concern to any you know particular human body you yeah. know what i mean like mm -hmm. it's like this kind of um we're all disposable in some kind of way to capital <laughs> yeah yeah no and um yeah, in art circuits and art worlds, um, there's a, a lot of rhetoric um, that espouses to to reach to be 
grounded in, in certain ideals. Mm -hmm. But the, and also, um, you know, we, we say we're, we're, we're doing all these things, but are we really doing it? So I think it's super important to, to push mm -hmm. back and question mm -hmm. that. So, so thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to be a thorn in people's sides, but that's what people see me as sometimes. <laughs> I think that's I think that's the role of the artist to be yeah. the thorn in the side of yeah. like all the people in power, all the or institutions of power. Sure. To remind them of the need to make these changes and hold them accountable. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah that's like, good. And I think to request our participation is also like to not buy our complicity mm -hmm. or to be paid apologists oh, for yeah, no, a corporation never. or for an organization, mm -hmm. but to continue to speak truth to power and to exist in your truth in these spaces. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that like, the yeah. digital era has kind of like cloistered people and made them completely buffered from like discomfort, right? Like you can say something terrible online and never be responsible. There's no consequence. You can do it anonymously. But the reality of sitting in a room of being accountable, of organizations being accountable to us as people with needs that are outside of dominant culture, yeah, um, yeah is to sometimes be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. <laughs> The writer Sarah Ahmed talks a lot about the feminist killjoy, and she talks about the importance mm -hmm. of sort of in a circle like this or in a room like this to be able to, to sort of mm -hmm. ask for that accountability and sort of press like that sustained commitment. Then at some point, that change. <laughs> right, what, what was that? You have to follow through. You have with to the follow change. through. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, an informal. Formal discussions. There's always a performativity, you know, involved, and you know, like how do, um, I, how do we move beyond like the the structures of of panels and supposed dialogues, where di di real honest dialogue, where we're really kind of off the script, um, making ourselves vulnerable, taking chances, uh, taking risks, the risks of like saying something maybe we don't have uh, fully thought out, um, but uh, that's brewing within us. Like where like, like real deeper uh, conversation hap happens. And I, I think where like uh, thinking can really kind of shift and, and open up, um, it, where does that hap happen? And how do we create structures where, where we can have more honest, more intimate, more vulnerable conversations? Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of another one of my like, frustrations with like art circuits and art worlds and that you know I, I in my introduction I talked a little bit about my discomforts mm -hmm. with being art artist yeah. but it's, it's always been a really uncomfortable kind of label but I've had this kind of like love-hate re relationship with um, the sphere of art you know a lot of it a lot of the sphere really has been super important it has been an important foundation but there's also these contradictions also that um, I'm uneasy with uneasy with I'm constantly um, wrestling with and struggling with within myself and also kind of with within the spirits so. mm -hmm. I hadn't heard that term, the feminist killjoy, before. That's just intriguing to me. Because oh, no. a lot of these I've things that, that we, these issues that <laughs> are so important to our work and that we want to um, promote in society and, and work towards, um, you know, justice and, and 
an end to injustice for, it's kind of a killjoy to talk about them, but they need to be talked about. We, we need to bring attention to these issues. And, and one of my big questions now is how do we have these discussions and bring these issues up without always having to be the killjoy, without always having to go, okay, technology, you know, only 20, okay, Google, only 20% of your women in technical positions, or 20% of your employees in technical positions are women, what are you gonna do about it? You know, in this kind of preachy, like naggy tone. <laughs> What's another way that we can talk about these things and not push people away or turn people away just mm. by you know, a negative reaction to the even thought of talking about it. But it's okay to be preachy and naggy. And maybe <laughs> that's, a, that's a great starting point, you know, um, and it's like necessary and essential at some, uh, you know, essential. And um, it's in that way we open up doors. And of course, we're not going to stay preachy and naggy because when we have dialogue and discourse, we move and we travel together and we arrive somewhere else. Mm. But we have to go through that process yeah. of entering difficult spaces and territories. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that progress is only possible when I always give people the benefit of the doubt and think like that. You're, we're all doing our best in every moment, and it's okay to challenge people and say you could do better. To say, um, you know, there is this oversight, this thing that you've overlooked, and I exist, I'm a part of your community. And then to not be the only person doing it, but to have allies and to, mm -hmm. um, once you are woke to disability rights or to the rights, I think all the time about my friends who are intersex and how often that I is left off of the LGBTQI mm -hmm. acronym and how upsetting it is to them because they're existing in this space in alliance with their queer um, community and to not be recognized. And then you have organizations that are starting to recognize them but haven't changed the acronym. Mm -hmm. And it's kind mm -hmm. of like, mm -hmm. you know, we live in this expansive society um, where people are, um, more empowered and have more platforms than ever before to speak truth to power. Um, and as those organizations kind of uh, learn to accept, another thing is that the privilege is so invisible to the person experiencing it and people are so threatened. I mean, masculinity, <laughs> whiteness, these things are so like uh, fragile. Like people always, get up in arms when you start talking about white privilege as a white person or start, you know, challenging other people's um, assumptions that they haven't challenged themselves. Um, yeah, I think there's just like an element of interrogating oneself and really looking carefully at what you can do for people who have less power. And the result is that we all live in a better world. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about the artists or join in the conversation, visit extraonline.org or find us on Instagram. The series was made possible by generous support by the Arts and Public Media Grant from the California Arts Council, the Michael Asher Foundation, and KCET's Artbound. Recorded at Catasonic Studios in Echo Park by Mark Wheaton, with production assistance from Sarah Allen Fowler and Theo Greenlee. Thank you to Shaolin Dub for our theme song.